0: Welcome back to episode three of this season of the VMP Anthology podcast. As you know by now, this season is devoted to the folk boom of the 50s and 60s, and the record label that brought many of the boom's best artists and albums to record stores and festivals around the world, Vanguard. In this episode, we cover the second album in your box, Odetta's My Eyes Have Seen, her Vanguard debut. Released in 1959, My Eyes Have Seen captures all of the hallmarks that made Odetta a star and a central pop cultural figure in the civil rights movement. There's her powerhouse voice and her haunting guitar playing, but perhaps most importantly, there is her impeccable song selection, a political essay as rendered as a set list. Here, she does traditional blues songs, work songs, and even the battle hymn of the Republic, which in her hands becomes a subversive attack of Jim Crow South.
1: I have read a fiery gospel, written burnished rows of steel. As ye deal with my condemners, so with you my grace shall deal. Let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel.
0: His truth is marching on. Glory in this episode, I talk with Dr. Matthew Fry Jacobson, a historian and professor in Yale's American Studies program, who wrote a 33 and a third book about Odetta's One Grain of Sand in 2019. While not the album featured in her box, Jacobson's book and this interview tackle why Odetta was such an important, courageous, and ahistorical figure who deserves way more attention from modern listeners than she's gotten in the years since the 60s.
1: Like everybody in the whole world
0: Let's get right into it. You write a 33 and a third about Odetta. You can pick any album. Like, why did did you want to focus on Odetta's Grain of Sand?
1: You know, that was the historian in me. I mean, I think it's a great album. It is one of her best albums. I think for me, the fact that it was 1963, it was it was the year of the March on Washington, which of course she was at. It was the year of the the centenary of the Emancipation Proclamation. So I knew my approach to whatever album I picked, it was really going to be historical. I wanted to talk about her as an archivist and as, as a historian, really, in her own right. And the way she used the folk repertoire to to really communicate something important about African-American history and African-American resilience. And so the the hundred year span from, from emancipation or or supposed emancipation to the release of that album was like a perfect little slice of historical time to, to work with mm-hmm. in that respect.
0: Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, you really kind of uh, frame the beginning of the book, at least in like Odetta making this sort of a historical decision to go from being an opera singer to being this folk powerhouse. So could you kind of talk me through that part of her career?
1: Sure. Well, so she she was born in Alabama, but her family moved to Los Angeles when she was about four years old. And her mother was, I guess, in the parlance of the day, was a cleaning woman. And she worked for a theater company in LA. And it was in that context that some theater people got to know the very young Odetta and spotted her as someone with some talent. And so from that point on, she was really, I mean, she got some really rigorous training and, and it was, you know, but she was really being trained in a classical mode and she was being trained to kind of be the next, the next Marian Anderson is how they talked about her. And you can see that. You know in her just the way she held the stage she has that just kind of majestic incredible kind of classical presence
0: yeah i think um, in the and, album covers especially that comes across like the, yeah, you know, and, and the bearing of her is very like opera you know yes yes yeah. and you And you can hear it in the voice as well so
1: that's what she was being trained for and at some point when she was still you know a young woman she was i guess um, somewhere between 19 and 22 i think when she really made this decision to just throw that career to the side and do this other thing and she had she had um, spent some time on the north shore in the bay area she'd been around some of the, the clubs there the folk clubs and and just loved it. And she loved the music. And it just made that decision to to take that turn from her established path. And it's, it's I just think it's an extraordinary decision for a young woman to make. But a fortuitous one for us that she made that choice.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, your book really dissects the song choices on one grain of sand. And I think that was like the thing that I really took away from your 33 and a third was like how radical her song choice was just in terms of like, yeah, what she was choosing to sing was ultimately like a political essay in some ways. Like if you look at the scope of her career.
1: Yeah, in some ways it was. I mean, you know, and I think, you know, my book doesn't do full justice to the the range of her actual repertoire. I mean, she sang, you know, Irish folk songs. She sang things from the Highlands. I mean, she sang all kinds of different music. But she clearly was really invested in the african-american tradition and i mean you know and that that itself is pretty broad that's kind of the the huddy ledbetter repertoire it's all the the smithsonian alan lomax repertoire it's field hollers and slave songs and the songs from the prisons but she really you know and this is why i call her an archivist she really approached those materials as As having an important story to tell about African-American history and her choice to sing those in mixed race audiences in the early 50s through the, you know, the height of the civil rights struggle is just, I think it took extraordinary courage, but I think you can also see in the record that she really moved people. It had it, it. did carry the kind of power, the kind of political power that she hoped it would. And a lot of people, just the, the kind of anecdotal evidence among, you know, SNCC workers and other civil rights workers who have been interviewed, they talk about, Odette. I mean, Bob Moses just passed away today, as a matter of fact. But he talks about listening to her, her Alabama repertoire when he was down south for the, the, the voter registration drives in the early 60s. But, you know, Odetta and Nina Simone, Mississippi Goddamn, are the people who come up again and again and again in those interviews with civil rights workers. And so I think, you know, she found an audience who understood the power of what she was doing.
0: And you touch on it a little bit in the book, how much of a sort of a, you know, a a rare outlier she was being a black woman singing folk music. Uh, You know, how radical was that scene at the time? Yeah,
1: well, I mean, I think that that's one of the things that drew me to her in the first place is, you know, not just her herself, but she's just a, you know, a towering figure with an enormous talent and just immensely interesting. You know, she's, she did just hundreds and hundreds of interviews over the years, and I could just listen to her talk forever about her craft and about her politics and about what she thought the music was about. But she was entering a scene that was also just a kind of protean, interesting, lively, complicated cultural scene, you know, the the folk, the folk houses, you know, she's, she really starts in the first years of the 1950s. Her first album's 1953 or 54. From then up to, well, let's say up to one grain of sand, up to 1963, those were years where those folk clubs were a real cultural crossroads where you would find like old old left figures like Pete Seeger and the Weavers and you know blacklisted people from a slightly earlier era you would find you know beat poets and and kind of beat comics you would find the, the next generation of folkies like like Joan Baez or or Judy Collins and and i think it's it's you know the publics that cross paths in those places I think, really help us account for the emergence of the second civil rights public in the post-war period. You know, the first civil rights public was totally decimated by McCarthyism. And so the first task of the next civil rights struggle was to first create a civil rights public and and a kind of a civil rights collectivity. And I think the folk houses and folk music as a forum were really, really crucial to that work. So in some ways, I mean, it is it was radical for an African-American singer to be in that space, but it wasn't it wasn't crazy because Mm -hmm. so many of the people who were crossing through those those, or or sharing that stage were people with really deep political commitments. And and half of the material was from the African-American repertoire anyway. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. so. So there was a certain kind of sense to it. But it is true that, you know, until Richie Havens comes along a little bit later, I mean, there are just not that many black people on the folk circuit in those years.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it feels like in some ways, like the folk scene, they at least acknowledged the African, you know, forebears of a lot of the material in a way that like maybe didn't happen with, you know, Elvis or the Beatles, you know, that like you right. know so maybe it's it's the the real performer doing the songs that yeah know, no, like
1: I, yeah no i think that's right i think that people on the folk side of things had a much sharper understanding of where the music came from and and what it meant and you know and because they were listening to lead belly and they were listening to, in you know the the lomax archive i mean the, you know the lomaxes were kind of like cultural raiders in their own right i mean i, I don't want to endorse their practices necessarily, but they did assemble an archive that was legibly an African-American one and that made accessible and available kind of African-American folk tradition. On the rhythm and blues and rock and roll side of things in the U.S., there was a much sharper kind of break and a a kind of amnesia on the white side of the color line about where the music came from. So, you know, if if you were a white kid in the suburbs growing up in the 60s, you probably thought that Elvis Presley and the Beatles invented rock and roll, right? <laughs> right. I, but on, on the folk side, I think that the, the, the continuity was always there and it was more legible and more widely understood.
0: Can you talk a little bit about, you know, Odetta's role in that, you know, second civil rights public and, you know, how important she was to that early movement in the early 60s?
1: Yeah, you know, she she described herself as not necessarily an activist but always ready to be there when she was called. And she was called all the time, you know, but she saw her role really as just as being a singer. And, you know, and she she understood the the songs she was singing, singing to have political import. She sang the Freedom Trilogy on the March on Washington, which is this amazing kind of, I mean, it is what it sounds like so she understood the political valences of the work she was doing but she she really didn't see herself as and i'm putting heavy scare quotes here she didn't see herself as being as important as you know the martin luther kings and the diane nashs and the ella bakers of the world you know she just saw herself in a different kind of role but she was important in the sense that she was there and she drew a crowd and she you know i think that King understood, like he understood that this was a, this was not just a movement, but it was also a media strategy. And he was really interested always in surrounding himself, himself with celebrities. Because where there were celebrities, there were cameras. And where there were cameras, the world got to see what was happening. You know, in that sense, Odetta played a similar role to like Carrie Belafonte or, you know, a range of people, Portier. There were a lot of, of African-American celebrities who were always kind of on call for the movement. And she, she kind of played that role
0: mm-hmm. as well. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. always called her like the voice of the movement. Like she was his favorite singer, you know? Yeah. That's something that was mind blowing to read in your book that she was so popular at the time that afro haircuts were called the odetta haircut. they were called the
1: odetta for a while yeah between i don't know what years that would have been exactly but something like between 1957 and maybe 1962 or three when it was it was really rare it was really rare for especially you know for entertainers to to wear their hair in a natural and she was one of the few who did and so it, it was called the odetta and then of course in the in the next decade in the 60s it became much more common and yeah.
0: I think you know, for somebody who's younger and was not around when Odetta was performing, it's hard to like grasp the context of like the times. Yeah. And to, to, to read that, like she was so big that that hairstyle right. was named well, after her It's, yeah. like mind blowing. And another way of thinking about that is
1: there's a sense in which, and I would put I would put Belafonte in this in this category as well. There's a sense in which she had arrived at Black is Beautiful about a decade before that became a really famous and common kind of vernacular slogan. You know, that's, that was just kind of her sensibility about, about her people and, and what needed to be said about them and how they needed to be represented.
0: And your book really, it ends sort of, you know, right at like a very pivotal moment for her and for the civil rights movement in general, because, She's on those 1963 and 64 bus tours that end up being, you know, attacked by members of the KKK. And can you just tell, I guess, the story of, you know, her and I think Harry Belafonte narrowly avoiding?
1: Yeah, you know? well, that's that's just one of the most it reminds us of what it meant to do civil rights work in those years. So this that was at Selma. She went down with a a group of, let's call them entertainers, celebrities, to support the march and to be there on hand. And they did some performing, actually, too, at the end of the march. But at one point, she and Belafonte were supposed to take a car, and they were going from, you know, point A to point B. I don't remember where exactly. But something came up, and they ended up not taking that car. They ended up going in a different car or going someplace else. And it turned out that that was the car that was carrying viola liuzzo who was one of the white civil rights workers from the north who ended up getting murdered that car got waylaid by Klansmen on some back road near selma and 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 <laughs> liuzzo was murdered and when they heard that news and they realized they knew exactly what the car that was as belafonte tells it odetta said to him you know Harry, we we really have to figure out what this means. And now that we're still here on this planet, what, what we are called upon to do. Yeah. That was that was a narrow miss for them and and just, you know, one of those many of one of the many tragic deaths around that phase of civil rights activism. Mm-hmm
0: it's impossible to not come away from your book and from, you know, reading about Odetta in general and not just have like a great admiration for her as not even just a performer, but as a person that like, she put that on her shoulders and like, yeah, just, yeah, just put herself out there like that.
1: I've been trying to figure this out and I can't fully explain it, but you know, she was among the most famous African-American performers during that that time at the late fifties through the sixties. And yet, you know, and then she lives, you know, well into the two thousands and she still, you know, she performs and she's, you know, she's not as present on TV or, you know, but she's still recording. She's still putting music out there. She's still touring, but the generation of my current students know almost nothing about her. And I don't Mm -hmm. understand, I really don't understand how, you know, Joan Baez continues to be famous through all these years, or, you know, Judy Collins. And it's almost as if Odetta drops out of sight. And it's, I mean, I think it's criminal on our part that that happened, that the culture let that happen. But I I just, I don't understand the mechanics of that. I don't understand how she kind of slips from memory. God is God,
0: rain. season of the vmp anthology podcast is written hosted and produced by me andrew winnestorfer it's executive produced by amelia Sutliff and edited by pora Chakravarty. it was recorded in my basement in saint paul minnesota so i'd like to extend a very special thank you to arthur and remy for being very very good boys and not being noisy while i was recording this a special thanks to matthew fry jacobson for talking on google hangouts with me about odetta
1: Looks like everybody